You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and inshallah, uh, God willing, uh, Imam uh, Imran Akram, he's just had a few uh, difficulties getting into the studio. So we wait with bated breath for his arrival. But in the meantime, um, our two topics for this afternoon, very, very uh, topical and on everyone's lips currently, the NHS crisis. So we'll be looking at uh, some of the factors that have brought us to where we are today um, with the NHS. Uh, I mean, you know, is it in crisis? I think everyone pretty much knows it is. Uh, uh, wait lists or waiting lists are increasing. Waiting times are increasing. Uh, the nurses are on strike. There's the um, prospect of junior doctors maybe uh, going on strike in March. Ambulance drivers on strike. Literally everyone, uh, all uh, areas of the NHS are striking currently. So, you know, we'll be looking um, at the factors uh, which we feel, or, you know, the research is uh, borne out. Uh, are the um, problems within the NHS and if there are some solutions to the NHS or to the crisis which we find ourselves in the NHS. Also, we'll be looking at, in our second hour, uh, the Afghan refugees. So in terms of Afghan refugees, what we're talking about is the uh, promises that were made uh, to the Afghan refugees that uh, had been taken in um, from the uh, departure of both the British government uh, and other governments like the US government uh, from Afghanistan almost most probably two years ago this coming August. Um, and we'll look at the schemes that have been set in place, but effectively there's been an outcry from charities as to the, um, I suppose, forgotten promises that uh, this government gave regarding uh, not just those Afghan uh, nationals who had worked uh, in concert with the British government and British uh, authorities whilst in Afghanistan. So that could be translators, guides, uh, etc. Uh, 6,300 have been uh, given refugee status here in the UK, but the promise extended to bring their relatives uh, and their families over. And we'll look more into that later on. And that's in our second hour uh, of the show. So we've also got uh, an Insta story. Uh, so would uh, regarding uh, one of the topics and the topic uh, uh, that the Insta story is with today is the NHS. 
right? The NHS in crisis. And the question that we asked was, would you be willing to pay more tax to fix the NHS? It's not as if we're not paying enough tax as it is uh, currently. But um, yeah, would you be willing uh, to pay more tax? I think uh, the government or in the uh, guise of the Prime Minister, actually, Rishi Sunak, has made, um, I suppose, suggestions that maybe we should pay. Uh, We should pay for GP or missed GP appointments, pay to actually go in the... pay to actually go and use A&E. I mean, uh, to my understanding, uh, if you're a taxpayer, you're already paying anyway. But to actually pay a ex, uh, well, an extra charge for these, so you know, we'll be looking at that in depth. But without further ado, uh, regarding NHS crisis, right? Uh, there's a chapter, and in fact, it's chapter 16, verse uh, 91 of the Holy Quran. It uh, says, "Verily." Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgression. He admonished you that you may take heed. So if we keep this verse in mind uh, and our forefronts of our minds as regards to how to look after Society, how to look after your society, your domestic society as a government. So it's to do, uh, uh, you know, to give like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgression. So you 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 have to do rights upon your fellow man. Now, as regards to the NHS service, um, it's it's. Uh, the inception of the NHS. I mean, it was introduced in 1948 uh, under the auspices of the then Labour government. Uh, The health secretary, or the health minister, I should say, then uh, Nuren Bevin, um, was the actual minister in charge of bringing the NHS into being. So when it was first introduced, it was intended to cover most medical bills so that those who were living in poverty were or were uninsured, could be treated. So that's one of the main principles of the NHS. It's to be free at the point of delivery. Also, uh, another one of the principles of the NHS was to be uh, to provide medical uh, assistance, uh, treatment uh, without, uh, without payment. So whether you're rich or poor, you could get treated. So, you know, those are a couple of the principles. Um, the healthcare, well, as healthcare, it's available to everyone in the UK without any costs. So that was the second principle. The NHS uh, provides doctors and nurses with job security uh, and great profession, uh, progression and experience op- opportunities. Maybe 20-odd years ago. But uh, I'm sure, uh, given the current circumstances, that might have changed. Now, however, a large-scale nationalized healthcare system means that there are many people to cater to. And so there are many limitations as well as strengths within the NHS. Because if you remember, 
there are factors like, for instance, our aging population, longer life expectancy now. So when the NHS came into in, uh, inception uh, or was created, you didn't have certain uh, stresses on the system of the NHS as you have today. Um, now, um, in terms of you know the doctors and nurses, they themselves, and you know we've seen because they're coming out on strike, uh, are under a lot of pressure and dealing with more patients, and hence you know you've got that situation where you're uh, increasing with the uh, patient numbers, but actually you're decreasing the number of staff. Now, in recent months, there's been increased. Uh, uh, there's been an increase in talks regarding the privatisation of the NHS. So these have been, um, I suppose, a long time coming, shall we say? Um, and this has led to a debate as to whether or not this would be a beneficial or beneficial to the NHS uh, in general. So, without, if we just take a, I suppose. Um, uh, a look at where we are currently with the NHS. You know, in a poll done by YouGov for Channel 4 News, it was found that 60% of people said that they were not confident that they would get help uh, that they needed if they ring 999 uh, and ask for an ambulance. Now, um, population changes over the years have meant that there's been an increase in people who have chronic conditions and multiple health conditions, in fact. Uh, this has meant that there has been an increased pressure and demand on health services. Obviously, we've just had the pandemic uh, of COVID, and that in itself has added a huge amount of pressure on the NHS system. Unfortunately, although the NHS is the biggest spend, um, or yeah, biggest spend for the government, it has been underfunded since 2010. So you can understand that if it has been underfunded for 13 odd years, it's not going to keep on going in the way that it is. And just to give you some figures here, around 14,000 beds, that's one in seven beds, are occupied by patients who can be discharged or no longer need to be in hospital care. Uh, this leaves thousands of beds unavailable for emergency or routine treatment. Um, so... You know, there lies the problem. And to speak more regarding this, I'm joined by my first guest of the day, who is Max Warner. Uh, Max is the author of Research for Institute uh, for uh, Fiscal Studies. And uh, that research was titled NHS Funding Resources and Treatment Volume. So uh, without further ado, peace and blessings be upon you, Max. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we're talking about the NHS in crisis today. I mean, what did your report find about the impact that specifically COVID had on the NHS um, as regards to treating patients? So clearly at the beginning of the pandemic, COVID had this huge direct impact on the NHS because mm -hmm. it had to treat lots of COVID patients. However, you know, that's even three years on from the start of the pandemic, which we're almost at, you know, the NHS is still treating quite a large number of COVID patients okay. as well. So some of those are people who are being treated primarily for COVID. Some of those are people who've come in for other care, but they still have COVID and that's still an issue. 
So you have that kind of direct pressure that there are still thousands of COVID patients in hospital every day. Then you have all of the indirect effects of the pandemic that are still playing out. So, for example, you know, staff are still affected, maybe burnt out, maybe low morale from the pandemic. We've got issues discharging patients. So there are all of these kind of indirect impacts that are still really limiting how many patients the NHS can treat. Mm. So with that, um, as the impact, can you can you actually, did your report give us some numbers, some stats regarding that? Absolutely. So across lots of different types of care, the NHS is treating significantly fewer patients than it was pre-pandemic. Not every type of care, but lots of different. So for example, in the between February and November last year, the NHS treated about 5% fewer patients from the waiting list. It's more like 10% fewer emergency admissions, fewer ambulance arrivals. So all sorts of different care, there was less being delivered than pre-pandemic, at least in numbers. There are some exceptions. So there were more GP appointments. There were more first cancer referrals. But the kind of big picture is that hospitals are really still struggling from these direct and indirect impacts of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So... Another thing that your report showed, though, is that NHS now employs more hospital staff. Uh, I mean, had this uh, helped the overall workload, or does this actually um, help the overall workload of the NHS? Yes. So as you say, the NHS, you know, the NHS has more funding. It has about 11% more funding in real terms Mm -hmm. uh, this year than it did pre-pandemic. And it has more staff of most types. So... Staff have higher absence rates, so staff are taking more sick leave than pre-pandemic. But even once you adjust for that, there are, say, 9% more senior doctors, 8% more nurses in the NHS than there were pre-pandemic. So for many different types of staff, there are more staff. Now, that is clearly going to help with issues. You know, it's easy if you have more staff, but doesn't necessarily mean there are enough staff. And of course, staff isn't the only thing that matters. So you were mentioning a minute ago, hospital beds. Mm-hmm. The NHS has about the same number of hospital beds it did pre-pandemic. But once you account for COVID patients, there's about 1% to 5% fewer beds available for kind of routine non-COVID activity. So that is a clear bottleneck. Mm. I mean, and so with this bottleneck, Max, here, how can mm. that be alleviated then? Because I think the government's argument... Let's let's not look at the strike issue as well, right? Because that is, mm-hmm. I suppose, um, a, a, I suppose a different aspect uh, of the NHS of the employ of the employees of the NHS, the nurses and the doctors, right? But when yeah. we talk about, um, you know, will it's it's how that money or how that budget has been allocated? I mean, is it being effectively used by um, the hospital trusts? The NHS trust. Yeah, you raise a good question. So as I said before, you know, there is more money, but obviously how it's allocated Mm -hmm. matters a lot. And I think when we think about staff, so for example, staff were given a pay award of between 4 and 5% last year for most NHS staff. Mm -hmm. Um, Not doctors, but for most other NHS staff. That is a lot less than inflation. Those at ten percent, mm. but budgets had only planned for two to three percent pay award. So the NHS itself, it didn't get additional money from government at that point. Had to kind of find additional money for pay. So I think how money spent, it, it's really quite difficult to make sure you know how that's spent. So for example, if the total amount of money given by the government to the NHS is fixed, then you know any more 
player pay awards, for example, is going to have to come from somewhere else. So it's really quite a difficult job for the NHS to balance all of these different things, given the budgets it has. Mm. So uh, what you're saying effectively is that once the uh, government has, I suppose, um, decided upon the budget then uh, for the NHS, they can't really go back or they, I suppose, they can. It's a, it's a political decision, um, uh, as always, but uh, they can't, uh, from their point of view, go back and increase that budget. It now comes down to, um, I suppose, the, 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 the hands of the NHS Trust and those administrators who are in charge to allocate or reallocate that um, that spend on uh, more labour costs, for instance? Yes, so they, so they can and they often do update it, like increase the money. But the issue we have at the moment is that inflation is really quite high, particularly last year. Mm-hmm. So the way a government or the NHS's budget is set is in cash terms. So, you know, this is the number of pounds you're going to get. Mm-hmm. When there's much higher inflation, that's a lot less generous than you'd planned it to be. So in the budget last year, the Chancellor gave the NHS additional money to kind of compensate for that. But it only made up about 50 percent of the inflationary pressures. So they're still in real terms getting less than they planned. Mm-hmm. And as you say, that means then hospitals have to take hard decisions about where they spend their money and when they have to cut back. I mean, ultimately, if you're given a prospect of, say, for instance, let's take the uh, circumstance of a nurse for instance. And I've seen a lot of this going around on Twitter, uh, social media, that you know the comparative wage for, let's say, uh, uh, per hour, okay, uh, a McDonald's employee to that of a nurse is not that far off. And you know, then you kind of like weigh up the, uh, the, the experience, right? And the time it takes to become a nurse. Uh, versus, I'm not saying that <laughs> McDonald's employees don't need training, but uh, it, you know it's it's more uh, involved. One would believe to become a nurse than a McDonald's employee. So when given that, uh, I suppose um, choice, then you know it's it's a hard choice to make then. Yeah, and I think I don't know those exact comparisons, but I think it's it's certainly true that over the last say. 10 years, nurse pay on average in real terms has declined. Mm-hmm. There's been a kind of broader public sector pay restraint that means inflate, pay hasn't grown as fast as inflation. So being an average nurse now, you're paid less essentially than you would have been 10 years ago. So I think that's certainly one of the challenges for the NHS is how can it recruit and retra- retain and attract the best staff possible. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you say, you know, pay is an important lever there. But we have to remember that Pay is difficult because, you know, money spent here, it can't be spent elsewhere, given the same budget. So it's a really kind of tricky challenge for the NHS when Mm. it's given the budget it's given. But then, you know, you would have thought that uh, there are certain aspects that um, in the governance of, say, for instance, the NHS trusts. I mean, I believe that uh, employees like nurses, for instance, still they, they have to pay to park, right? Uh, in hospitals, um, for instance, um, we're led to believe from the government that uh, they still receive a bursary um, whilst they're training, although that is quite um, suspect, 
<laughs> that information um, because I've had it on other sources that uh, that bursary has been taken away. And I believe the bursary was something in the region of four to five thousand pounds. So that's an additional cost. Um, the white elephant that's in the room, Brexit, because, you know, you have a lot of nurses who were from the EU have left and gone back to the EU now. So that's created this, um, I suppose, shortage in nursing for um, per se. Uh, and then, you know, I think the point that you're bringing up as well is that how can the NHS attract, you know, nurses to stay within the, the profession? Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't, bursaries, I don't know a huge amount of detail on, but I think, I think the big picture is right here that, you know, working in conditions and the conditions of your employment are really matter and it's not just the money it's everything else and again these are staff that have been under a huge amount of pressure during the pandemic you mm-hmm. know working on covid wards working incredible amounts of overtime working very hard so you can understand why you know some staff are thinking about other options why morale might be low it's a difficult question but clearly keeping and maintaining a workforce is vital for the nhs Mm. I mean, and, you know, when we see in the uh, public domain, you know, um, the the wastage um, that is, say, for instance, um, top of my head, PPE, uh, whilst COVID was about. And it's, you know, going to the tune of, you know, five to six billion now. So it's it's a case of like, how do we rectify this? Is really privatization the answer uh, to the NHS? Um, I mean, if we do a comparative, if I look at the railways now, well, they're just in that kind of situation as well. They used to be a public owned, um, uh, public owned entity, I should say. Uh, they were privatized, and that hasn't really improved the service that people are getting. So, what is the answer? Is it some kind of um, kind of like a hybrid between privatized and public services? How would that work? I mean, what's your opinion on that, Max? So, I, I think these are really important questions, and I think you know the impact of COVID raises these challenging questions because, as you were saying earlier. The NHS and health more broadly is a huge part of government spending. Mm. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear to almost anyone that the NHS isn't performing as well as we'd like. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's clearly under a lot of pressure and it takes it's a huge part of spending. So if we want to increase spending and make it better, that is inevitably going to need higher taxes more borrowing or cuts to other public services. And all of those are really unappetizing. So I think as a fiscal question, it, it's very interesting. Ultimately, though, it comes down to not an economic, but a political question mm-hmm. about, you know, how do you want to fund public services? What level of that should be? Um, and we don't really at IFS talk about those kind of political questions because that's really kind of a political matter there. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, just economically, it's just such a big part of the state. But it, it makes it a very difficult challenge um, to fund and to provide high quality services, clearly, at the moment. Mm. So, yeah, you're not giving me an answer, Max. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no, no, but I, I mean, if, you know, re- irregardless of the fact that it's a political, because ultimately it is, it's down to the government mm-hmm. uh, to decide. But, you know, this idea of, well, is, is this, this model of privatisation 
would that or does that give the best performance, the optimum performance for a entity, whether it be public or private? So, yeah, that and that is an important, more question, economic question. And I think mm. the real answer is it depends how it's done. So actually, at the moment, you know, hospitals operate within the NHS. Each hospital is really its kind of own organization. And some hospitals, this is a big part, actually, at the moment of tackling the waiting list, contract private hospitals to provide some activity. So mm-hmm. there already is this kind of interaction between what the NHS does and were using private sector capacity. It's very hard, though, because actually a lot of the doctors who work in the NHS also work privately. Mm-hmm. So that means, you know, there's these trade-offs that make it very difficult. I think, again, I'm afraid this is a bit of a non-answer, but it really depends on how it's done. Um, I don't think there's much political will or public support behind any sort of broad privatisation. Um, but, you know, the system changes over time. So, you know, in the last 20 15, 20 years, it changes how things are done, how much there's an internal market between different providers, how much is more centrally organized. So I think some of this is happening internally, um, but but big picture, it's kind of hard to see any easy solutions there. Mm. So finally, though, Max, I mean, do you think that the government can just continue just to endlessly fund the NHS? I mean, ultimately, um, it has to, but does it? Is there some kind of uh, top limit uh, to its spend? So yeah, that's a really important question. I think it's clearly at the moment at a sustainable level because you know the government is spending a lot on the NHS, a lot on other public services. It's raising almost the same in taxes, and then it's borrowing the difference. As of Stelco's national debt, you know, borrowing is kind of high, but is somewhat forecast to come down at the end of the period. I think. The hard thing with this is that is it, it really depends on how much you politically want to say raise taxes. So, for example, we could increase NHS spending by 25%, for example, or, you know, any high number. And that would require, ultimately, either to cut other services, mm-hmm. to raise taxes, or to borrow more. Um, and that is really the constraint. There is some upper limit there. You know, taxes can't be 100% of the economy. Mm-hmm. Um um, NHS can't be 100% of the economy, but where that constraint is, is really unclear. And I, I don't really think we're there yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. But it's, um, once again, it's down to the political, yeah. well, the political will, right, of the government. And you can, I mean, you know, I'll be the devil's advocate here. Uh, and I'll support the government in the terms or in the sense that, I can understand the argument that, right, okay, it's not just, I mean, we're talking today specifically on the crisis within the NHS, but we've been beset as a country, as the UK, since, I suppose, since December, really. Uh, Since the middle of December, uh, there's been a strike every other day, if not every day, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, ranging from trains, uh, barristers, uh, teachers, u- um, university lecturers, etc. You know, nurses, uh, ambulance drivers. You name it. It seems to be that that industry or the, uh, that body of people are striking. So that, f- to me, as a you know, kind of like Joe Bloggs on the street, would mm-hmm. indicate that there's a problem with you know the the management of whether it's a private or public because like you know the, the RMT is representing 
uh, a private company or is it representing the employees of a private company, privately owned? Whereas you've got the mm -hmm. NHS, you've got teachers striking. So there is something, <laughs> you know, uh, out there which is not satisfying the employees in general, whether it be the public or the private sector. And, you know, unfortunately, that's a political decision. Yeah, and I think it really just highlights the kind of pain of high inflation, right? In a high inflationary environment, mm -hmm. you know, people's take-home pay can fall quite quickly. And understandably, people don't want their pay to fall in real terms. So, you know, I think this just kind of reiterates the importance, actually, to go off topic slightly, of, you know, stable inflation, which is what we mm -hmm. had prior to the last couple of years. And again, in, in kind of, again, I think a fair point for the government is, you know, this inflation, we've had this energy shock, we've had this kind of huge economic damage. And again, that makes it harder to fund public services. That makes it harder to raise taxes when economically we're not doing as well. And mm. that, again, makes it hard to handle these things. But also, Max, you know, when you basically hobnob or hobnail, I should say, not hobnail, hobnail yourself by um i think uh the 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 ex prime minister uh, liz truss 44 days whereby the pound dropped you know to to almost parity i believe to the us dollar uh upon um her kind of like ideology of tax cutting uh and you know it's created this you know this i suppose um 40 i, I think the 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 estimate was roughly about 40, 44 billion uh, in government financing, then that doesn't really help the situation. Yes, I'm not so far for that 44 billion number, but what I would say is, you know, this kind of comes back to your previous point about where's the limit with how much mm -hmm. we spend on the NHS, where's the limit with government borrowing or spending, and ultimately it's the markets that decide that. The markets are those that lend us lend the government money that it does these things and and that was a point where the markets lost confidence mm -hmm. and, and that severely worsened the fiscal position so you know our view as an organization you know is always that sensible well thought out spending and taxes is what's needed mm -hmm. to run and you know to have sensible fiscal policy mm -hmm. mm. and it seems that uh, unfortunately we're a bit devoid of that but max Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. So 0208 687 7878 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. Please call in because, you know, this is something which I'm sure everyone has had a visit to their GP, has had a visit to the hospital, whether it be A&E or a checkup. And you know, you're experiencing these delays. And it's not because of the people who are working within the service. It's how that funding is being allocated, really. So, you know, if you have an experience, something to say, please call us on 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam, uh, Voice of Islam UK. Now, going back to the, uh, to the Insta story, I was saying, now, would you be willing to pay more tax to fix the NHS. So this is something that um, Max was talking about, that ultimately you have to find the money from somewhere, uh, whether it be in higher taxes uh, or um, you decrease the spending in other areas. So to our 
uh, to the survey, just a kind of like a rough poll, we had 37% saying yes, they would be willing to uh, pay more tax to fix the NHS, while 63% said no. So, you know, that's, um, yeah, that's how we're feeling currently uh, regarding this. But if we look at, say, for instance, the strikes, yeah, now Rishi Sunak and other ministers uh, are actually prepared to consider a one-off payment to the nurses and healthcare workers to help them get through that winter season uh, and put an end to the nurses' strike. But unfortunately, in further government action, new laws have been discussed that will allow the government to set a level of service that must be met during strikes, a minimum level, uh, to ensure that it does not impact on the safety of the public. So effectively taking away the right to strike, the right to withdraw your labour. Now the strikes bill will mean that essential public services such as rail, ambulances and fire services, as well as the NHS, will have to meet that minimum requirement of service during strike action. For the first time in history, tens of thousands of nurses uh, tens of thousands of nurses have gone on strike in December and today, I should say, and continuing uh, onwards. The main cause for these strikes are obviously the low pay. Uh, now, in line with the current cost of living uh, crisis, nurses are campaigning for an increase in salaries that are 5% over inflation. It's not only for those nurses who are in the NHS, but for those other sectors. There are more than a third of all patients who walk into A&E wait more than four hours before they are seen by professionals. Uh, one in five patients who are brought into the hospital in an ambulance have to wait more than an hour with paramedic crews before they are actually admitted uh, uh, to A&E. You know, in the months of July to September 2022, there are approximately 133,400 full-time staff vacancies in uh, all the NHS trusts. So we can see that there is this problem um, within the NHS. Now, I'm joined by a public health doctor, Dmitry uh, Nepal-Godev, uh, to speak more regarding the uh, crisis within the NHS. Uh, peace and blessings be upon you, Dmitry. Thank you for joining me on the Drive Time Show. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for the invitation. I hope I pronounced your surname correctly. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's as as near as possible. Um, so, you know, from your research as a public health doctor, you know, how many patients are on the waiting list for you know for a surgery? Yeah, so this is a really important question uh, to understand what the challenge we're dealing with in the health service is. So, we've estimated that at present there's 4.3 million people in England who. Uh, would potentially benefit from having an elective procedure. So either something like a camera test uh, as a diagnostic test or a, or a surgery. Um, but of those people, only around 1 million are actually on the NHS waiting list. Oh, okay. Um, so the, the challenge we have is that a majority of people who potentially would benefit from medical treatment are patients who are not on the waiting list. And, and why that happened is that um, during um, the period since the pandemic started, there's been a drop in the number of operations being done in the NHS, okay. a very substantial drop. Um, and 
And and that's due to the pandemic or due to what? Um, well, I, I think there's lots of reasons. Uh, one is obviously during the uh 2020, that was the worst year, as you'll remember. Mm-hmm. Um, the NHS was using a lot of beds for treating COVID patients. Um, we were concerned about the safety of operating on patients uh, during COVID because it increased the risk of complications. And so we were trying to reduce the number of operations we did so we could do them as safely as we could to keep patients safe. Um, and I think it's been quite difficult to get back to a normal volume of surgery since then uh, because of those logistical challenges of balancing the increased pressure on the NHS that we've all heard about mm-hmm. with uh, still trying to keep our patients safe uh, from catching COVID infections. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we haven't got back to that normal volume, th- that means there's a ever-growing backlog of patients who during a normal year, would have had treatment, but mm-hmm. haven't been treated because of this pandemic disruption. Mm. Um, and, and so that's what, why we think there's about 4.3 million people who've effectively missed out on treatment who would normally have had that if it hadn't been for the pandemic. So then, obviously, I suppose, you know, year on year, you would say, for instance, uh, have figures that, you know, say, for instance, uh, hip and knee replacements yeah on mm-hmm. average you'd have x amount a year so you're saying uh, so my my uh, presumption would be this 4.3 million would be added on as a time lag or added on sorry as numbers to next year's quota uh, yeah exactly so it, it's increasing so you mentioned hips and knees and we think there's about 300,000 hip and knee replacements that haven't been done over this period of time that would normally have been done. So that's quite a big gap. That's a lot of people who would potentially be uh, having increasing symptoms that mean that they can't do their normal daily activities, whether that's looking after their loved ones or Mm -hmm. going to work. I mean, Um, obviously, it's impacting upon their own quality of life, isn't it, ultimately? Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's a massive issue. Um, and as I say, the, the, the challenge we have is that um, most of these patients who haven't been treated are not on the NHS waiting list uh, because perhaps during the, the pandemic they, they didn't go to see their GP. Uh, perhaps they, their GP didn't refer them to a specialist mm-hmm. or the specialist, or maybe they've been referred, but they're still waiting for their first appointment mm-hmm. to see the specialist. Uh, and that's a that that's a challenge because it means that we can't prioritise people according to their need. Their need, yeah. It, it may be that some people are quite sick, but because we don't know about them effectively, it's very difficult to get the right treatment for them. Hmm, hmm. Um, so, I suppose then, you know, Dimitri, what you know, what is the impact? Uh, you know, what you know is the impact that these delays. Uh, I suppose it's an obvious question, actually, as I'm asking it, have on the lives of these patients? Because, you know, I mean, I can see how you're explaining it, is that, you know, you just, as, as and it's no fault of whether it's the GPs, whether it's the actual consultants within the NHS, but effectively, this 4.3 million people on these, uh, you know, this hidden waiting list, we can call it, are, you know, in limbo. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's it's quite difficult to know exactly what's going on because 
there will be some patients who um, perhaps they, they would normally have been operated, perhaps, mm-hmm. but maybe their condition has improved by itself. Yeah. That can happen for some conditions. Um, there will be some patients who perhaps don't want an operation anymore. They've okay. gotten used to whatever symptoms they have. Um, and of course, there will be some patients who've sadly died, uh, maybe of a different cause, but whilst they would have, were waiting effectively for, for that particular treatment. Um, so not all of those 4.3 million people necessarily need surgery at this point in time, mm-hmm. but there will certainly be a proportion of those patients who do have increasing symptoms that have an increasing impact on their lives. And, and how do we see this in the impact on wider society? Well, we know there's a big shortage of people um, looking for work at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's quite difficult for a lot of employees to fill fill their jobs. And one reason could be that people with perhaps hip and knee problems, mm-hmm. perhaps with a hernia, are not able to work as much as they did in the past, and they and they've sort of dropped out of the the labour market, and that's mm-hmm. having a big impact on the economy. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be an impact on people who are not able to look after their loved ones. That might be after their children or that might be after their elderly relatives, for example. And and that could put a greater pressure on the social care system because perhaps in the past um, somebody looked after their elderly parents, but now the social services need to step in and support them more. So that puts more pressure on the social care system. And I think there will be people who have these increasing symptoms uh, who... Uh, will be going to see their GP to get uh, advice from their GP and, and as much as the GP can help them. But again, that puts a lot of pressure on primary care when it's already under a, a huge pressure. So th- th- there's lots of different ways in which this hidden backlog mm-hmm. can is impact. impacting on, on, on not just... Uh, the individual itself, but the the economy and society as a whole. Okay, exactly. so so you know how so that that is the problem. This this hidden waiting list, right? Mm. How do you think you know the NHS should prior prioritize? I should say, you know these surgeries uh, to try and reduce these waiting lists. Then, I think that um, there's a couple of things. So, firstly, I think we need to be honest. Um, uh, you know, as, as a um, country about the situation the health service is in mm-hmm. and to, to kind of try to understand the pressures. Uh, I think often we hear that uh, politicians say that, you know, we're tackling the backlog, we're getting the numbers of patients waiting down. Um, but that, although that's probably technically true according to the published statistics, the, the problem is all these patients who don't appear in the official statistics. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like things are getting better when in reality they're still very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to accept um, the challenging situation we're in. And then I think we need to have a public debate about, well, what are the next steps Mm -hmm. um, and how do we address that? So because maybe there are different things we could do to try to tackle this. So for example, the NHS has traditionally prioritized people according to their clinical need. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how serious their condition is. Yeah. But maybe we need to start taking a bit of a wider, more holistic view and start thinking about, well, maybe some patients um, should be prioritized because of the impact their condition is having on their wider life, mm-hmm. not just 
the kind of severity of symptoms, but also the fact that they're not able to go to work mm -hmm. when usually they would be the person earning an income for their family, for example, mm -hmm. or that normally they would be looking after an elderly parent. And, and because they're not able to do that, that, that other relative also suffers. So kind of thinking about these social factors and how we prioritize people. Mm -hmm. um, another thing is how can we work with communities across the country to raise awareness of the importance of getting um, medical help when you first develop symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, although there are long waiting lists, it's really important for people to know that they should seek help if they're worried about any symptoms. Because the sooner we get um, patients diagnosed and recognize their symptoms, uh, the sooner they're going to get help. And it's, they're going to have better outcomes the sooner they get diagnosed, essentially. So it's really important that if anyone's worried uh, at home, that they go and see their doctor if then, if, you know, for that. Um, and I think, you know, also recognizing that although we have these challenges, the NHS does work really hard to prioritize the most serious cases. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if someone has a cancer diagnosed, they will generally get their treatment um, as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. It's it's really the people who are who are left at the very bottom of the waiting list are the people with um, perhaps not life threatening conditions, yeah, but yeah. conditions where they are where their clinical need their isn't life. as severe as others. N not as severe, but that doesn't mean that for them individually, it doesn't mm. have a big impact. Um, so, yeah, so I think the key things are uh, understanding the problem, making sure everyone's still seeking help, and then we can start thinking about how we can um, maybe better use the private sector. Mm -hmm. um, that's something people have been talking about a lot. So how can we use that capacity um, make sure we have enough funding to support that as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that brings me on to just you know, quickly as my final question to you. Uh, you know, what do you think that you should go, you know, whole scale uh, and privatize the whole of the NHS? Um, I mean, would, uh, that, uh, would that be the panacea for the NHS? Would that be the instant relief? I, I think the reality is that um, we hear a lot in the news about um, the need to reform the NHS. Mm -hmm. And any reforms that are attempted are going to take many years to see any benefit, if, if, if there is a benefit. Whereas the problem we have is right in front of us now. So I don't think reforming the NHS now is, is going to really help us with the current problem. Um, the, I, I think the challenges we have in the NHS are around uh, staffing. Um, I think you were already talking about the strikes, mm -hmm. um, trying to keep as many people and attract as many people to work in the NHS. So we need to think about how we can do that. Um, and um, investment in extra capacity. So what that means is more operating theatres, more beds, and the staff to keep that going. Mm. I, I don't think there's any cheap solutions, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, it probably needs sustained and significant investment over a period of time, five mm -hmm. to ten years. And I think uh, the the point that my previous guest Max was like saying is just it's it's not that it doesn't get funding the NHS it does, but it's how that funding is allocated. So uh, I suppose a better allocation of funds um, into 
you know, infrastructure and labour ultimately? Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, the NHS budget is increasing. Um, I think there's also a question about empowering local leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes in the NHS it can be a bit of a top-down uh, organisation, so making sure that health leaders in local areas, including GPs, including hospital specialists, hospital managers, have the um, freedom to kind of design their services to meet the needs of their local populations. Because mm-hmm. the solutions that work, you know, for example, where I am in Birmingham, will not be the same as what works in um, Hereford or in London. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about how can we best adapt to our local um, environment, residents mm-hmm. and, and local environment to meet patients' needs because, you know, they're all unique populations with unique needs. Mm. And really important as well is that we make sure that we do this in an equitable way, mm-hmm. meaning that um, we make sure that everyone has equal chance to access the care they need, mm. regardless of who they are. I mean, that's... before the pandemic, we already had inequalities, mm-hmm. and we don't want them to get even bigger and worse mm. as a result of all this disruption. So we need to actively work with communities to make sure that everyone's accessing the care they need. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes, no, well said. Well, Dimitri, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you for, very much for joining me on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Have Thank a nice evening. Yeah, Bye-bye. you too as well. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at uh, Voice of Islam UK. Um, I mean, you know, I, uh, it's it's a very hard thing to say or to discuss regarding the NHS because it is that... Um, I think a lot of people have said, you know, the jewel in the crown of uh, public services, uh, most probably the only public service really <laughs> kind of left in this country, which hasn't been sold off. But yes, um, you know, the idea that uh, privatization, I mean, there, there, are, there are positives or unfortunately more negatives. Now, in terms of negatives, um you know, many doctors have expressed their concern over the privatization of the NHS, and this has mostly been the cause or been because of private healthcare establishments and the ability to that they themselves have uh, to destabilize NHS services. Now, in the year 2020-2021, billion, right? 192 billion was spent by the Department of Health and Social Care. This money was used for various services such as GP services, mental health, ambulance, hospital services and other health care services. Now, NHS service providers often transfer patients to establishments that cover both public and private services. Now, if the NHS continues to outbid services, they may become financially unfeasible and so will cease to exist. Uh, this could result in private companies dominating the care of uh, patients and possibly setting their prices above the cost of care in order to maximize profits. So, you know, working for the shareholders as opposed to working for the care. Um, are there any positives? Well, one of the main reasons for the privatization of the NHS is being discussed uh, is because the current model actually doesn't work anymore uh, due to increasing intense financial pressure on the NHS. Uh, narrated by Anas, uh, the uh, um, um, 
the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him said by god who holds my life in his hands none of you can be truly a faithful muslim unless he liked for his brother what he liked for himself so you know just that uh, phrase of the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him you know just shows you in terms of islam we have to you know look out for our neighbor we have to look out for our brother now it, you know the healthcare service that is the NHS in this country was given down to us and you know prior to the NHS unfortunately if you were there was nothing there was no healthcare for the poor uh, there was a, these i think the victorian institution of the workhouses so if you were poor you pretty much didn't have much of a life expectancy if you had a serious illness you know it wasn't very looked upon you had to have money to see a doctor so you know bear that in mind uh, regarding the nhs <clears throat> now with that we're just coming up news please join me after the five o'clock news where we'll be talking about another contemporary or very contemporary uh, topic the uh, afghan refugees and the broken promises from this government you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, uh, in our studios here in South London. So we've just uh, had the first hour. Uh, the first hour we were talking about the NHS and the crisis within the NHS. And uh, I would feel remiss if I didn't play this audio clip from His Holiness Mr. Mazur Ahmad, uh, the head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Now, um, he, His Holiness uh, delivered this keynote address uh, on the occasion of the inauguration of the Nasir Hospital in Guatemala. And, you know, this frames really the significance of uh, serving humanity. Whilst Humanity First is an independent charity and has its own mandate and strategies, at the same time, it was originally founded by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community <clears throat> through financial contributions and other means. Ahmadiyya Muslims across the globe support the efforts of Humanity First. <clears throat> so that it can increase the scope of humanitarian project and further its reach. Thus, Humanity First has a deep and lasting connection with the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And so today is not only a day of happiness for the members of Humanity First, but for Ahmadi Muslims worldwide. You may well be wondering why we have built this hospital. The answer is very simple. It has been built with purely and um, purely one intention and that is 
quite simply to serve humanity by providing high quality health care to the people of this nation. Also, I wish to clarify at the outset that having built this institute, this will not be the end of our services to this country. Rather, it is my prayer that this proves to be the first of many humanitarian projects established by Humanity First in this region. <clears throat> Indeed, I hope and pray that uh, the opening of the hospital serves as a as a launch pad propelling humanity first towards furthering their mission of providing relief support and opportunities to people throughout the world perhaps some of our guests may be surprised or even perplexed as to why a Muslim community has so much passion and determination to help and serve non-Muslims. To answer this question, I should explain that ever since its foundation, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has always sought to uh, be on the very front lines of serving humanity, whether it be directly through our own community's uh, schemes or through Humanity First or through the support of other charities and good causes. For example, over the past few decades, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has opened many hospitals and schools across Africa, in which the local people are provided access to health care and excellent education, irrespective of their uh, ethnicity, religion, or social background. Most of the patients treated at our hospitals in Africa are non-Muslims. And around 90% of the students who study in our schools are non-Muslims. Thus, we do not discriminate against any community or people in, and do not give any priority to our own members. So those were the words of His Holiness, uh, Mizra Mazra Ahmad, head of the Worldwide 
uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community upon the inauguration of a uh, Nasir hospital. And the importance of basically healthcare within the community it should have no uh, race, color, or creed. So these are you know, uh, Islamic principles. <coughs> and ultimately, the NHS was built on these principles, right? You know, to be free at the point of delivery. Um, to, you know, not to charge. Uh, you know, there would be no cost uh, associated to your clinical needs. So rich or poor, right? So, you know, bear that in mind when next you think about the NHS in crisis. So uh, we're going to go straight into, uh, not even take a break, but straight into our next uh, topic, which is Afghan uh, refugees, the forgotten uh, promises. So what is that about then, Imran? Because we've been joined by my co-host, Imran <laughs> Afkaram. Peace be upon it. Uh, peace be upon to um, all of the listeners. So, um, in the second hour, we're going to discuss about the Afghan refugees and the forgotten promises. Now, it will be uh, two years to the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in August this year, and when really it feels like it was yesterday. So, um, at the time of the uh, uh, fall of Kabul, Western countries pledged not only uh, take Afghan refugees, but also promised to, you know, uh, reunite them with their families who couldn't, you know, resettle right away. So in the case of the UK, this um, this failure of uh, fulfilling this promise has, you know, uh, resulted in hundreds of charities and activists to write to the Prime Minister Rishi mm -hmm. Sonak. And the latter urged him and his government to facilitate the settlement of family members of Afghan who come to the UK under the Afghan citizens, um, Citizen Settlement Scheme, ACRS. And the families of those brought to the you know, UK remain in grave danger back home. And charities say that British government has a responsibility to fulfill the promise made to the families torn by the conflict. Establishing justice, protecting and giving equal rights to the vulnerable section of the society is the fundamental teaching in Islam. In the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, it is uh, in chapter 5, verse 9, that, O ye who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness in equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, that is nearer to righteousness, and fear Allah. Surely Allah is aware of what mm -hmm. you do. So the uh, Afghan Citizen Resettlement Scheme, the ACRS, mm -hmm. uh, is uh, effectively 6,300 Afghans who have been brought to the UK under the scheme, uh, but who had to leave their families behind right. Right. Uh, in Afghanistan. Now, they say that their loved ones are in grave danger, and that's mm -hmm. obvious, yeah, what we can see. I mean, I think recently in the news, uh, another you know, uh, female... Uh, had been killed. I mean, no one knows who killed her, but you know, the, it's pretty good kind of like guess <laughs> as to who, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, they are in grave danger, and they don't know if and when that the government will honour their promises and reunite them with their loved ones. The letter to the prime minister, coordinated by Safe Passage International, highlights the vulnerable family members, uh, including women girls and those who have been persecuted religiously 
uh, and minority ethnic communities have been forced to live in hiding in Afghanistan. Um, you know, and you can understand the risk that they're under. Now, the U UK has committed to resettle 20,000 Afghan refugees under the Afghan citizen re resettlement scheme. Mm -hmm. So it's still, you know, by my calculations, a thousand, well, 13,700 short. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beth Gardner-Smith, the chief executive of Safe Passage International, urged the British Prime Minister to fulfil the promises made to the refugees who were brought to the UK and reunite them with their families and protect them from danger. She said that it's been 18 months since these families were torn apart when Kabul fell. Mm -hmm. The government has effectively abandoned these Afghanis, leaving them without a process to reunite with their loved ones who are in a risk despite repeated promises made. Afghans remain one of the top nationalities risking their lives to cross the channel. Mm -hmm. uh, to speak more regarding this, we're joined by our first guest of the day on this topic, uh, Abdul Hakim uh, Saqib. Now, um, Hakim is a member of the Educate Girls Now team and members uh, of the board. Uh, sorry, a member of the board. He was evacuated over a year ago by the Spanish government and works directly with families, staff and teachers in Afghanistan. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you, uh, Hakeem. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Hakeem Shakib, and very nice to to have you on call. No, nope, it's very nice to have you on the show. So we're talking about this situation with the Afghan refugees. Now, in December 2022, the Taliban banned Afghan females from university education. What influence will this have uh, on a broader situation for women in the country? Uh, I think uh, I think the most important impact would be on the, the current government itself. Yeah? Uh, they will lose their trust to the international community. Mm -hmm. uh, Western governments will stop uh, aiding them directly. The society may face tens and hundreds of challenges if women are excluded and banned to educate. In a traditional society like Afghanistan, uh, people do not feel comfortable to take their wife or female family members to a male doctor, yeah? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which obviously makes them to lose their family members if they need medical treatment. And uh, according to a recent uh, research, 48% of population of Afghanistan are comprised by women. Mm -hmm. So if women are excluded, 48% of a population from a society, especially a society like Afghanistan, which needed every member of, uh, of, of that society contribute in its rebuilding, then it may take centuries to be equal with today's world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can understand when you, regardless of um, sex, let's say, right? Yeah, your gender, actually, to, be, to give it this proper... Uh, uh, notation, regardless of gender, effectively what you're saying is you're you're almost like saying right, okay, our population, uh, half of them, we're not going to use, right? If you're uh, the Taliban government, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, where do you expect to kind of like come back economically and socially uh, as as a country? You know, if if you're going to do that, if you if you deny the rights of half the population. You need everyone to unite to actually, um, you know, to, to, to bring the country back to, to, you know, some level of order. Yes, 
Yes, exactly. Absolutely, and you know, um, um, you you talk you talk that you know the people of Afghanistan they don't uh, uh, you know want um, to go to the uh, male doctor, you know. But uh, the the thing is, if the girls are not going to educate enough, then how they how they not go how they not go uh, going to get you know uh, uh, to become a doctor, and how they gonna uh, going to you know um, uh, get educated and treat women because it is very important that uh, women of the society should learn and then you know they can uh, mingle with other women but anyway um you know the um, educate girls now works at the, at the grass level with families and girls to provide them with education how does the university ban affect the work you do and are girls still able to obtain education through any means um see uh, egn or educate girls now uh, is very much committed to what it's doing now for the afghan families and girls families get uh, stipends while their kids are receiving education through online classes conducted by afghan female teachers uh, which on the other hand is a support for for other educated girls to teach what they learned besides receiving a monthly salary and uh, i'm sure afghan girls have always been very eager and interested in education and open roots for building their future and making their life brighter mm-hmm. even in this current situation i witness girls who are very interested in seeking education through online classes and definitely we do always we uh, according for, for their for their sake of their security we we always prioritize their security by asking them about their willing if they are able to attend the classes without any threat from anyone around them. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you know, in that terms, Hakimia, you provide these online, is that act online um, tuition, right, uh, for these girls? Is that actually directly, you're still providing that uh, you know, online support within Afghanistan? Yes, yes, we do. We do have these, these programs right now. Mm-hmm. That's very good. So, yeah, because yeah, you're working directly with these families. You know, can you tell us, you know, what are some of the dangers facing? I mean, uh, facing these families, because if, say, for instance, at the moment, well, you know, since 2022, uh, you know, the Taliban government has actually banned uh, Afghani females uh, from university education. You know, is there a risk to their lives if they're doing these online courses? Um, people of Afghanistan are facing uh, a growing humanitarian and economic crisis compounded by the impact of uh, sanctions and uh, embargoes and freezing of state assets. According to, uh, according to UNAMA, more than half of the population of Afghanistan are in need of humanitarian aid, with nearly 20, 20 million people facing, I think it's like 20 million people facing uh, acute hunger. On top of it, there is a risk of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Similarly, the efforts of the efforts by the Taliban to exclude women and girls from social, economic, and uh, political spheres have institutionalized large-scale and systematic gender-based discrimination and violence against them. Mm-hmm. So continued restrictions on fundamental freedoms could lead to more severe violation of international law and possible atrocities. <clears throat> yeah, mm-hmm. so this means uh, 
there, there, there will be like uh, if, if they, they ban on, on, on the schools, on the education for girls, uh, you know, Matt, the ban on, on, on education for girls also means that they, they don't want women to work too. It's mm-hmm. not only the case of being a doctor, yeah? It's not the case of the being mm-hmm. a doctor helping women while they are, they are uh, ill, while they are sick. Mm-hmm. According to Reuters, there are approximately 2 million widow women in Afghanistan. Wow. Mm-hmm. Most of these women have more than two kids. Mm-hmm. Some of them have five and six kids. And the only person who can bring food for her kids are those widow mothers themselves. Mm. If they don't let them work, a huge number of Afghan population may face extreme bad situation and even death. Mm-hmm. But 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 uh, I believe I believe if foundations donate non-profit organizations who help provide education to Afghan girls like EGN, like Educate Girls Now will help girls to continue to get closer to their dreams until the current situation changes and the schools and universities reopen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hakim, if you can help us understand, you know, and uh, obviously our listeners, that why um, the people, I mean, um, especially the uh, the government there, the Taliban government there, why they do not let the girls um, study in, and edu- educate themselves? Uh, this is really a, a hard question, yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, I mean, the, for this question, you should you should have you should, you should have called mm. someone like uh, a political leader. Right. <laughs> I don't want to go to politics, mm. All right. but uh, uh, I really don't know. There mm-hmm. there are some, some politic political issues or political like. Uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, I don't want to go to that that. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. That uh, that deep. Deep level, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So, Hakim, uh, can you uh, can you tell us about your evacuation from Afghanistan by Spanish government and what scheme uh, did they offer? Um, so, uh, my evacuation was was done by by an NGO called Warrior Angels Rescue, uh, who was uh, uh, located in in US. I was in contact with them, and uh, mm-hmm. once they, they knew that uh, I'm in danger in Kabul, mm-hmm. they helped me to evacuate me, and uh, they evacuated me to, to Pakistan, and I stayed there for like eight months. And unfortunately, the bad thing that was happened to me before the fall of Kabul was that uh, my family, my, my wife and my kids were in India. <clears throat> so they were, they were stuck there in India, and I was... I was in Pakistan, and there mm-hmm. was no no route between like for them to to come to Pakistan, and there was no route for me to go to India. So they helped us. The the Warrior Angels Rescue Team helped us to uh, to stay in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. They helped us uh, support us uh, financially, and they introduced us to the to the Spain uh, Embassy and Islamabad. And then after like uh, passing the interview, they they checked, they like background check me, and they did all the their their uh, they done all the requirements of uh, issuing the visa to to an Afghan, and then I received my visa and I came to Spain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Were you able to be reunited with your family? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I good. reunited with my family on uh, August August second uh, of August twenty twenty two. Okay. 
So it yeah, must be a so joyful I was reunion. like away from them for one year and, and one month. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Hakeem, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon so on yeah. the uh, Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. you too. 0208-687-7878 or, or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, and, you know, Imran, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of Islam, how does Islam view this? I mean, in, in kind of like coming back to the mm-hmm. issue of refugees. Mm-hmm. So definitely if we look uh, towards the Islamic point of view that, you know, protecting and providing refugees to those in need of safety is a key teaching in Islam. In chapter 59, verse 9 to 10 of the Holy Quran, it is said, these spoils are for the poor refugees who have been de- uh, dr- uh, dri- driven out of their homes and their possession while seeking grace of Allah and his player and helping Allah and his messenger. These it is who are true in their faith and those who had established their home in this city and had accepted the faith before them. They love those who come to them for refuge and find out and find not in their best any desire for what which is given them, i.e. the refugees, but give precedence to the refugees above themselves, even though poverty be their own lot. Whoso is rid of the covetousness of his own soul, it is these who will be successful. Now, just to give the background of this uh, mm-hmm. verse, uh, you know, uh, when the the Muslims were living in Makkah, and um, um, they were persecuted because of their religion, so um, Allah the Almighty um, instructed the Holy Prophet وسلم, to migrate um, to Makkah to Medina, mm-hmm. another city in Saudi Arabia. So um, uh, the the companion of the Holy Prophet وسلم, they migrated them, and there already uh, people have accepted Islam there, and they call uh, Ansar the helpers. And in, in this verse, Allah the Almighty actually uh, actually uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, giving the you know giving ap- appreciating the people that they have uh, wol- welcoming the people of the uh, Meccan people, and in some cases there are certain incidents that they have shared their um, wealth as well with them mm-hmm. and their houses. Mm-hmm. Even I, I, I think you know if you uh, tell our listeners mm-hmm. uh, the commentary uh, from the second caliph, yes. yeah, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad. Yes. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him. What does? How does he explain this verse? Absolutely. So under this, um, um, you know, commandment, uh, under this verse, he commented that he command under uh, the verse under commented embodies a great testimonial to the spirit of self-sacrifice, hospitality, and goodwill of the helpers. The refugees from Makkah came to the helper, which I was talking about, and deprived and uh, undued of all their possessions, and the later received them with open arms and made them equal partners in their belongings. The bond of love and brotherhood which the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, established between the refugees and the helpers, and to which this was bears an equivalent testimony, stands unrivaled in the whole history of human relationship. You know, as I just uh, talking about previously, that this kind of example we, we cannot uh, see in the history of the world, that the brotherhood, the, you know, the compassion between each other. Mm-hmm. So we should uh, show the compassion uh, towards these Afghan refugees who um, basically um, are, you know, torn upon b- because of conflict. Um, 
then you know there is so much wisdom and guidance in the, in every teaching of the holy quran that it um universally apl applied uh, who would see um you know um, we would see a better far better world if mm. we can apply mm. these teaching of the holy quran i mean and there is this letter to the charities uh, or the letter that the charities have actually written to the government mm -hmm. uh, to persuade them and remind them of the very uh you know actually remind them of the broken promise yeah mm -hmm. actually reminds us of uh, uh you know teaching of the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him uh, about the role and mm -hmm. responsibilities of leaders, governments, and states in helping and protecting the vulnerable. Now, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, There is no leader who, cho who closes the door to someone in need, mm -hmm. one suffering in poverty, except that Allah closes the gates of heavens for him when mm -hmm. he is suffering in poverty. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, coming back to the topic of the Afghan refugees, now, according to the observer, uh, uh, Afghan nationals who were promised resettlement to the UK nearly a year ago are facing torture and death whilst they are uh, waiting for a response even uh, from the British government. Not one person has been accepted and evacuated from Afghanistan under the Home Office's uh, ACRS scheme. Uh, launched in January last year, prompting claims that the ministers are showing a toxic combination of incompetence and indifference. Now, unfortunately, under Taliban rule, poverty levels in Afghanistan have since surged. The rights of women have been rolled back, and the UN has recorded at least 160 extrajudicial mm -hmm. killings mm -hmm. uh, regarding helping those in need and supporting others in difficult times. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, Whosoever relieves the hardship of a believer in this world, Allah will relieve his hardship on the day of resurrection. Whosoever helps ease someone in difficulty, Allah will make it easy for him in this world and in the hereafter. So, you know, these promises that have been broken, um, we're actually joined by uh, a very special guest, a co-host of uh, the Drive Time Show, mm -hmm. uh, former yeah. Labour councillor, and actually I think he's standing for um, uh, Labour as an MP, Hanif Khan. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Hanif. Thank you for joining us yeah. on the Drive Time Show. Yeah, Walaikum Asalaam, and it's great to listen to you. Yeah, no, obviously everyone aspires to be something in politics after being um, uh, an elected councillor for eight years. But yeah, I mean, everyone has their <laughs> it's, ideas. It's, it's a natural progression, be. one would say. Exactly right. right. Um, so what's your, I mean... You know, we you've got uh, the the how shall I say the gloves are off for you. You're our guest today. So, in in what sense, you know, because uh, these are broken promises. Yeah, I mean, to me, let's let, let me let me frame let me frame the question for you or frame the the, the situation. Right. So uh, the government's promised with the Afghan resettlement scheme. 20,000, 20,000 places, 6,300 have been given out so far, but nothing for those who have come and their relatives, their dependents, right? Yeah. On the one hand, that's the promise. Now, on the other hand, there is no legal means by which they can get asylum here because the government in their borders policy has closed that door. So how is that working sure. out? What's your view well, on that? You can, well, you can see it. It's, uh, it's chaos, isn't it? You've mm -hmm. got a, 
a dysfunctional system that's being created by the government. And it comes, especially when we're in a need worldwide where there is so much immigration and asylum where people need protection, don't they? And they and they travel from their own countries, usually because it's war-torn, as we've seen in Afghanistan and Syria, uh, where people need to travel. And you're right, the numbers are not good. Uh, I mean, I know local authorities up and down the country have taken many asylum seekers especially under this system that you mentioned i mean i know in hounslow we took approximately about 125 um afghans who came over and when the crisis was taking place when you saw our soldiers lifting um our afghans who were in desperate need who helped us mm-hmm. who fought valiantly to, to bring them here under such very dangerous situations and there were acts of courage of uh, people as we witnessed during that time at Kabul airport you know we saw the pictures that were uh, being seen on on our news channels mm-hmm. and how it was and it was a sad day for many people in Afghanistan because of the way things were done but although we cannot hide away from the remarkable efforts and the difficult circumstances that many people um, displayed and acts of courage and heroism so that you can't take that away from from the people and what the military service did and how they were oh no but for actually, sure for sure the ground, now but... what we're seeing today i'm not i'm going to answer this question yeah you've allowed me to take my gloves off but i didn't want to go full force my way because <laughs> i always get accused of beating up the politicians especially yeah. the Tory party. Yeah. but i wanted to definitely say that we are seeing that I mean, mm. at the end of the day, you know, migration has always been part of our national story, hasn't it? I mm. mean, look at yourself, me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents came over in the 1960s and we were educated and our children are now Pretty being Patel. educated. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, and, and obviously we talk about Suella Braverman, who mm. completely, I mean, I won't go down that road just yet, but always, mm. like I said, it's been part of our story, hasn't it? And... And it has always been part of the Labour Party in itself and its integral core. And it kind of completely understands the contribution that asylum seekers and refugees make to the economy, especially when they're working in our public services. Your previous conversation in the first hour was about the NHS. Mm -hmm. And you've seen the amount of international people that work in our NHS who are serving our... 50% of junior doctors are of Asian descent. There you go. Um, But but there are so many other issues bringing it back down to to this issue is that Mm -hmm. now because of this chaos and this dysfunction where we are seeing the horrific human trafficking of because of what you said earlier about the legal routes for Mm -hmm. asylum seekers that has been closed and we are spending millions and millions of taxpayers money that's being wasted as you mentioned earlier i mean i've mentioned the rwanda system Mm -hmm. where we haven't managed to set one person and all that and at the moment it's already costing us in regions of about seventy-five thousand per person but But okay so i i I pose to you hanif yeah so what is the difference like i you know a refugee is a refugee i mean even under uh, the 51 Charter, right, which the UK yeah. signed up, was one of the signatories, in fact, right, uh, in post-World War II uh, times, that 
there seems to me currently a difference in the brand of refugee. And why I say that is that, say, for instance, with the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict, um, you know, the then Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, was uh, welcoming. I mean, there were schemes to bring Ukrainians over. Whilst yes. then, on the one hand, that was happening. But on the other hand, you're shutting the door on other refugees, mm-hmm. uh, specifically Syrians, Afghanis, uh, Yemeni, right? Yeah, what, what, yeah, what? yeah, I mean, you're saying you're. Obviously, the Labour Party is not in power. These are purely decisions being made by the current government, although hmm. we hold them to task as much as possible. And actually, the first thing that we would do when we come into power is to do things differently by setting up safe and legal routes and definitely cancelling the Rwanda plan. You have, we've all seen it. We're watching it unfold in our eyes. We're seeing the way that our brothers and sisters in Eastern European through the, the war that Putin horrifically has, has launched on Ukraine. And we're seeing the displacement of Ukrainians into its neighboring countries mm, like Poland, Poland and here. And, and people are coming here in their droves because there's lots of families there. There's a big Ukrainian population here. But you're right, it does seem, and people are seeing it, that is there a difference to the people that are coming, say, from even Syria, who we have welcomed here in this country, and the uh, people from Afghanistan? And is there a difference? I think things are moving very slowly. There is just such a large influx, but it needs to improve. Yeah, the question is there, and we're seeing it unfold. Why is it that the process has been quite easy for people from Ukraine coming to the United Kingdom, being very easy than those that are coming from other other countries which you've described? And is it I'm feeling there's an elephant in the room. You're not addressing the yeah. elephant in the room. Exactly <laughs> right. And, and people have been talking about it. They have been mentioning mm-hmm. it. But actually... You have to treat people fairly, equally. Mm-hmm. But the biggest issue that we have is that there are no safe legal routes coming into this country. And it needs to happen. And we need to welcome people uh, from all over the world, especially when we look at the different types of culture that they bring, mm-hmm. the expertise that they bring. And as soon as they come to this country, we need to allow them to start working so they can start paying into the system, paying in so we can collect the taxes from their work. Again, I'll refer back to your previous um, hour. There's over 130,000 vacancies in the NHS. How many of these people that are coming over from these war-torn countries Mm. that actually are qualified professionals who can work in some of our uh, areas where we need uh, staff, doctors, nurses, Mm. even people who can just work um, with great vigor and and speed and strength, you know, working in the back offices in, Mm -hmm. in the NHS. Yeah. So it is a big question that we need to ask, and we're seeing it. It really hurts many of us that we see Mm -hmm. the way the policies are being implemented, especially this Rwanda policy that, like I said, we will stop that straight away. We'll create safe legal routes because we'll embrace, you know, these new people are coming to our country. Mm. You you have asked a pertinent question, you know, the the elephant in the room, and Mm -hmm. people are seeing it, they understand it, and they feel it. But it shouldn't stop. People coming from Ukraine shouldn't stop people coming from Syria, uh, Afghanistan, like we're talking about today. We should be looking after everyone. We should be doing our fair share, especially after the Geneva Convention, which we all signed up to. And now we're hearing that Rishi Sunak wants to um, move away from the European Court. 
Yeah, exactly right. So he can uh, change or try and stop people coming in the boat. But you and I both know that that's not the answer. Mm. Legislation will not fix this problem. We have to look at it from a completely different perspective. But legislation has already played its part. There are laws already in place that prevent this from happening. But it's just chaos that's actually happening now that we're seeing unfold in front of us with this dysfunctional um, of the present government that's doing all this and, and spending millions of our taxpayers' money and wasting it. Uh, I think billions. But anyway, I think Imran's just yeah, got I a question for you. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, and if um, I've heard this argument from from the people, you know, that uh, it is our moral responsibility to help uh, the Ukrainian people. I'm not against it, but obviously, um, um, so we have, a, you know, we have uh, um, aided them billions of pounds uh, during the uh, last year. But on the other hand, um, there are there are Afghan refugees as well, and uh, there are you know severe famine in, in Afghanistan, and people are dying there. But and uh, I was um, reading an article and uh, which says that you know um, the English Channel, the people who crossing the English Channel, um, Afghan refugees are highest. Uh, one of them, you know, the, the 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 people who are crossing English Channel. Don't you see the double standards? We're sending them to to the Rwanda, and we on the other hand we say that our moral responsibility is to you know aid uh, towards the uh, Ukrainian people. Right. First thing first. This Rwanda policy is despicable mm. and it should not mm. be in place. The money that's being spent on trying to implement uh, this policy, um, although the court, the, our Court of Justice said that the, the policy they put in place is legal, but mm. actually with the people that they're trying to send to Rwanda has mm-hmm. not met the criteria mm-hmm. because their due diligence and the way they've implemented it is all wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it won't happen. And we will do whatever we can to stop that from happening. The issue with Afghanistan and many of these war-torn countries, you're 100% right. Mm-hmm. Poverty is there. And therefore, as also, what we need to do is help those countries to become and develop them so that mm-hmm. they do not have the want or the need to leave. When I speak to my friends who I've now made friends with who have come from these war-torn countries, mm-hmm. you ask them, you know, you don't want to leave your country. They say, of course not. Why exactly. do I want to leave the country I grew up in where my friends mm-hmm. and family, I do not want, I want to go back there. Sure. And they, want, they love their country. But the point of having an asylum system is to allow people to leave their country into a safe place, such as here in the United Kingdom, but with the view of returning if they wish. Mm-hmm. With the situation in all these countries is so bad that we are unable to resolve the issues that are happening. Even today when we had the earthquake, the 7.9 mm-hmm. earthquake that's hit Turkey yeah. and also Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you remember? People have forgotten about Syria. Absolutely. People have forgotten about it. has been in civil war for 10 yeah. years. Mm-hmm. And now they're saying, how are we going to get relief to the area where the earthquake has, hap- has hit in Syria, but they can, in the north is where the mm-hmm. civil war line is, is, is occurred. Right. So these are big problems. Mm-hmm. So we are forgetting our moral state. You mentioned mm-hmm. it earlier how important it is from an Islamic point of view, where we need to be looking after mm-hmm. the humanitarian aspect of people all over the world. And these are the things that we need to do. And just um, finishing off, you know, you are, again, you asked that question about um, why Ukrainians, why they're coming. 
But also, if you look at the current situation, the families that have been hosted and being welcomed and living mm-hmm. in the families, they're now not receiving many of them the money for housing the Ukrainians. So they're being having to become homeless themselves. Mm. So that's another system that's also another broken, broken promise. <laughs> yes. It is. So the best thing for me, um, while there being too political, is we, we need to readdress and rebalance our country so we can look after the people in all of our public services, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et but yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know where I stand and it's quite clear, really, what we need to do. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I, I think it's stated by you know, other news services, not myself, but uh, I'm just re- repeating the news that yeah. we need a different government. <laughs> but on that note, thank you very much. It's been always a pleasure to have you on the show. No, you Thank you very much. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Did a great job. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We're actually joined straight away by our next guest, uh, Najis uh, Zadran. Uh, Najis is a member also of Educate Girls Now team, uh, and uh, she's a member of the board. She was evacuated over a year ago by the U.S. government and works directly with families, staff and teachers in Afghanistan. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Najis. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me over. So... um, you well can you actually tell us you know a little about the detail about the evacuation scheme which was actually offered by the US government to yourself and you know does that scheme um offer uh, the resettlement of family members um so yes, definitely. I was evacuated by um, uh, by the government of the U.S. Initially, when they started the evacuation uh, process, they were able to evacuate family members along with the evacuees as well. But oh, okay. unfortunately, after they stopped their evacuation in somewhere in September, it has become a, quite a challenge um, mm-hmm. for the family members who have who have um, who are left back. So, and uh, the process of resettlement in U.S., unfortunately, is taking longer than Europe and Canada, as we have heard, um, because um, over here, all the evacuees who came here, they have to officially um, uh, apply for asylum here, and sometimes it can take years, which means that, um, you know, after the um, refugee, you get the refugee status, then you can go on and you can have your family members apply for your family members to be resettled with you. So for as of now, um, the process looks lengthy for the Afghan refugees here. Yeah, mm. so, so basically, um, Najis, if you weren't taken with your, uh, say, for instance, yourself and your family uh, your dependents initially in that first wave, then there's the stumbling block of time, uh, you know, time lag yes. then. And then yes. you're um, being actually, I, I, I don't like the word, but processed as a normal yes. asylum seeker. And until uh, the US government uh, approves of your asylum, then only, and then and only then will your, uh, your dependents and family members be allowed to come over. Absolutely, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, I guess uh, we know that, you know, the, uh, there's a currently um, Taliban government uh, in Afghanistan. So what is the situation in regards to the people who want to immigrate and leave the country for refuge? And uh, what support is available for them? 
So at the moment, actually, there is no support um, on no. the grounds in Afghanistan. As you're aware, there are no diplomatic missions in Afghanistan. No embassies are open. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because the government of Afghanistan has not been officially recognized by, by a majority of the Western countries. And there are like uh, people are still um, and they have to uh, go to the third country where mm-hmm. U.S. embassy is or the Western embassies are. So from there, they can have access to the embassy and then from there um, they can go. But, you know, that process in itself is uh, very lengthy and troublesome because now most of these countries like Pakistan, Iran, Uzbekistan, Turkey, these are like the third countries that Afghans went to in the beginning. Even they are not giving any visas to Mm -hmm. Afghans. They can go there and apply or, you know, um, follow up with the process of their so honestly, there is no mechanism in place for people who are in Afghanistan or even right now, um, like, for instance, we have some of our families, um, the organization that had evacuated them in Pakistan. And it's honestly even difficult to get to hear back from embassies. They had given them initially um, um, dates for interviews, but then we heard that those dates were canceled and they had to reapply. And you know, the process, which was mm. supposed to take only a few months, promised by the embassies, has become a very lengthy process. It's been like one and a half year now. Mm. So there are no mechanisms, mechanisms. in place I mean, it sounds who want to, yeah, yeah, it sounds pretty much them. like what we have here in the UK, although there is a Afghani uh, resettlement scheme uh, for refugees. Yeah. Um, the it, you know unfortunately the government here is uh, you know, reneging on the promises uh, that they've made because of or due to the scheme. I mean, you know, you yeah. you you you're you're working with Educate uh, Girls Now team. I mean, do you think? Yeah. And you know, you've had high profile or you know, there's been a high profile visit by the Deputy Secretary General. Uh, to Kabul to try and pressurize the Taliban. But do you feel that there's any hope of things getting better for women in the near future in Afghanistan? Well, honestly, um, with the government, with the current government in Afghanistan, it really is very difficult to say what to predict. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there has a lot of there is a lot of pressure um, by the um, Western countries on Afghanistan to let the girls get education and that. You know, their promise was uh, initially that they would reopen schools in March of 2022 uh, when they, you know, they closed it in 2021 and they did not um, keep their promise on the top that this um, um, this uh, winters, we heard that now universities have also been closed um, uh, for girls. Um, but I think... Um, I would say that um, we should not lose our hope, even though in the near future we don't see any um, any positive responses from Taliban. But the mm-hmm. world should continue to work with Taliban and um, especially the um, the Muslim countries. Um, they should continue to engage in dialogue with the um, current government of Afghanistan, so they can be the role models for um, Taliban to follow in their footsteps. Um, um, so my 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 point is that these talks should continue, and the more pressure and the more um, um, dialogues um, continue with Taliban, we we can be hopeful and we can hope for um, change in the um, 
course of action of Taliban and their policy regarding um, girls' education in Afghanistan. Mm. Mm-hmm. But now, guess, uh, what do you think the wider society and the and the world leader uh, can do in Afghanistan's support? So, the, I mean, the wider society. First of all, my message to the wider society would be. Um, you know it, 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 there has to be a few things that need to happen uh, in Afghanistan the society or the wider society can should continue to help local organizations in Afghanistan and human rights workers and aid workers to continue the work that they are doing these are like basically the people on the ground that are filling in the gaps that have always been there um even the previous governments that we had they failed in many areas to fill in those gaps like access to health access to education we had these non-profit organizations international organizations that filled in mm-hmm. filled in the gap by the previous government and i think this is the case not only with Afghanistan you know this is the case with any third world countries and developing countries right. we always need these organizations um um are working there so i mean they should continue to support um these organizations mm-hmm. even at the moment um, that i'm speaking there are many organizations that are working in Afghanistan like for instance EGN my organization it has been working there nonstop since 2014 supporting the afghan families and the mothers so they can continue you know mm-hmm. with the commitment that they can send the girls to school um and not get them married at the young age um mm-hmm. so this is like one part of the work that we are doing in you know even though we are a small organization but there are different other organizations as well and so our work since 2014 hasn't stopped to the day and so it's important that the wider society should continue to support and the support is the funds <laughs> you know mm-hmm. these are like the things that these organizations really need to be able to continue the incredible mm-hmm. work that they are doing on the ground Mm-hmm. And so my and and my message to the world leaders really would be that they should continue to work with Taliban they should not forget or they should not give up on Afghanistan and it should not be sidelined like some of the countries that we see and nothing positive has come out of that so i think it's important that they should continue the dialogue with the government of Afghanistan and as i said earlier as well that muslim world and muslim leaders could play a most important and imminent role in this area uh, where they could engage with dialogue with Taliban and you know they can they can show mm-hmm. to them what is an example of an islamic country and islamic government i mean we see all these other islamic countries afghanistan is the only country where we see these very drastic and radical policies against mm-hmm. uh against women, women in education mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. so these these are some of the things that I think the world needs to continue to talk and um work with Taliban. Mm, yeah, and exactly. No, just... The world should not turn a blind eye to what's happening and they should not give up on Afghanistan and people of Afghanistan because it it won't do any good for Afghanistan or for the world in mm-hmm. general really because exactly. we are all part of one um well, yeah, one, one community. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, we're, we're one yeah, we're a global community. Well, Najis, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on the uh, Drive Time Show. Yeah, thank you for having me over um, at at your program. It was equally pleasure. Thank you. Have, have a good day. Yeah. You too. Thank Bye. you. So that's bringing us to the end of the show regarding that. But you know, Islam, <laughs> you know, stresses that education for men. 
uh, and women is of equal importance. And the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, laid down that education is compulsory for both. He said it is the duty of every Muslim man and every Muslim woman, woman to acquire knowledge. Uh, in other words, only those who ponder can understand the signs of God uh, and come close, closer to him. The Holy Quran further teaches us uh, in a short prayer in chapter 20, verse 115. Uh, and it simply commands us, mm -hmm. O oh, my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Right. And uh, in keeping with those commands, you will find that Muslim women, and especially Ahmadi Muslim women, are well educated. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, encouraged his wives to seek knowledge and once stated that half the religion of Islam could be learned from Hazrat Aisha, who is his wife. And indeed, after his death, the advice of his wives was sought by the entire Muslim Ummah, the entire Muslim community. Nowadays, you will see Muslim women active in many professions, such as medicine, nursing and teaching. Uh, and teaching. I mean, has His Holiness got any words regarding this? Absolutely. His Holiness, uh, Hazrat Mr. Bashiruddin Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, the second caliph of Ahmadi Muslim community, uh, founded Nasiratul Ahmadiyya for girls. This organization is created to provide the youngsters of the community with an insight to the teaching of Islam. Girls in their organization have the opportunity to learn and improve their self-learning, not just in the religious aspect, but also the worldly. That is why you see that, you know, Ahmadiyya Muslim community, especially the girls, they um, they educated very highly. They learn about Islam and, you know, how to recite the Holy Quran and as well as their uh, organization, uh, you know, um, uh, convention held annually. And um, they have an opportunity to, um, you know, prepare speeches in competition. And so through that, basically, our um, community um, learn, uh, educate our girls. And mm. His Holiness, um, Mr. Masur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, the fifth caliph and the current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, very beautifully explained. He said, um, nowhere does Islam say that women should be, um, you know, should be uh, confined to the home as as is something, you know, alleged. For example, there are some girls and ladies who excel in studies and achieve extraordinary results, and Islam does not instruct that they should waste their talents or skill and only stay at home. Mm, very well said. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. A big thank you to our producers, Hafia Ahmed, Manahil Nasir, Aisha Nasim, and Taiba Taiba Nasir. Uh, a thank you to my co-host for half the show, I should say, <laughs> uh, Iran Akram. And a thank you to our back room staff, Habib, uh, of which we would never be able to come live to you. So that was uh, Monday's edition of The Drive Time Show.